Well, it's time to hear from the Apostle Paul again, but uh, as you know, um, he does not respond to an adult voice. So I need my children's helper for this week. Who, who's going to help me? Who's been practicing the Greek phrase to call out the Apostle Paul? Is it Penelope? Are you here? Is Penelope? There she is. I thought we were in trouble there for a minute. Penelope's been practicing her Greek. All right, we're going to come stand over here, and I'll whisper in your ear, and you can repeat after me. And the Apostle Paul will come out in the court, courtyard and talk to us. Felona. Noriso. Tom Crystal. I thought I heard someone calling out here. Maranatha. For those of you I've not met before, I'm Paul. I'm the least of the apostles of Jesus Christ. I'm probably the one closest to death at the same time. If you've been following my story, you know that we had this wonderful council meeting in Jerusalem where we got together and decided what we would say to these new Gentile converts regarding the keeping of the Jewish law after they were converted to following Christ. And you remember the decision that we would not lay the law on the shoulders of the Gentiles, asking them to bear a burden that we or our ancestors had been unable to bear. And so once the council was finished, we, we went back to Antioch, traveled north to that city, and spent time there with the believers explaining what had happened in the council meeting and and how we were going to proceed. After we had been there some time, it occurred to Barnabas and to, to me that we really should return to the churches that we had visited and established previously. We should tell them the news, but also encourage them and see how they were doing, to teach them and, and help them. And, and as we began talking about it, Barnabas insisted that we take John Mark with us. But I didn't want to take John Mark with us. I mean, granted, he had been with us when we had evangelized in Cyprus, but then he bailed out on us and left us high and dry as we sailed north to Asia Minor. And I was, I guess I was equally adamant that we not take John Mark with us on the journey. And we talked about it for some time, and I was not willing to budge an inch, and Barnabas was not willing to budge an inch, so we decided, well, we'll have to just go different directions. And so Barnabas and John Mark headed to Cyprus to the south, and I took Silas with me, and the brothers and sisters commended us to God's grace and sent us north. And so we headed up through Syria, through Cilicia, visiting the churches, encouraging them, and, and helping them. Eventually, we traveled all the way to Derby and Lystra, where we had been previously. We were excited to see the churches doing well there. In Lystra, we ran into a young man named Timothy. And Timothy was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. His mother was a devoted follower of Christ. And he had an outstanding reputation in the whole region. And so we asked him to join our missionary adventure so that we could take Timothy with us. But before we took him, we marked him in the flesh as a Jew so that since our primary missionary strategy was to go to the synagogue in the town when we first arrived, so that we wouldn't give offense to the Jews who were there on the way in. Timothy agreed, and we continued our journey. We traveled all through Galatia and the region of Phrygia. And by the time we got up to Troas, which is in the western part of Asia Minor, 
I had a vision. We, we had thought several times that we wanted to travel north into Asia, but the Spirit kept prohibiting us from doing it, saying that's not the direction. And when we got to Troas, this vision was of a man from Macedonia pleading, saying, come, help us over here. And put together with the Spirit's promptings, we believe that's where we need to go. So in Troas, we crossed the sea and headed to Macedonia. In Macedonia, we arrived at Samrothrace and eventually made our way to the town of Philippi. Philippi was a large Greek city. And soon after we entered, we ran into a woman named Lydia. Lydia was a merchant, and she dealt in purple fabric, which is a very expensive fabric, and she was a woman of means. And in response to our message, she was converted. She and her whole family were baptized. They came into the kingdom. And after that experience, she said to us, you know, if you, if you count me a faithful follower of Jesus, would you please allow me to host you and your group while you're working here in Philippi? Well, we believe that what, that was what the Lord was calling us to do. So we stayed with Lydia during the time that we were in Philippi. But we had some interesting difficulties in Philippi. There was a slave girl in the center of the city who had a spirit of fortune-telling in her, which allowed her to tell the future. And when she saw us, she started to follow us. And then she began to shout behind us wherever we went, these men are slaves of the Most High God. They've come to proclaim a new way of salvation to you. Well, the first time it was like confirmation, but the 34th time it began to get a little irritating. Everywhere we went, every day, she would follow us and she would yell out to the crowds. It was hard for anyone to listen to us over her voice. And, and finally I turned and said, come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And immediately that spirit fled. Her owners were not very pleased because they had been making a handsome living off the fees from her fortune-telling. And all of a sudden, their profit was gone, and they no longer manipulate this girl for their benefit. They were incensed, and they gathered up a mob to make false charges against us and dragged us before the city authorities, claiming that we are disrupting the town and that we were saying things against the emperor and on and on their charges went. And the magistrates, listening to these merchants, had us beaten with rods and thrown into the deepest cell of the prison, shackles around our ankles. There we sat in the middle of a jail, not knowing what would happen. Maybe it was whistling in the dark. I don't know, but we took courage in singing hymns together. And in the middle of the night, we began to pray and sing, and our spirits were encouraged, and our, and our voices rose, and, and we knew that God was bigger than any circumstance we might face. And right about midnight, the ground began to shake violently. There was an earthquake. 
and the earthquake caused all the cell doors of the jail to spring open and the manacles to fall off our ankles, we were amazed. We were free. And as I stepped out towards the entrance to the jail, I found the jailer, whose sword was already drawn, ready to kill himself. Because he knew that what he faced from the Roman authorities, should his prisoners escape, would be much worse than death. But before he could finish the deed, I shouted, Stop! We're all here! There's no need for you to kill yourself. He was amazed. He couldn't believe that the jail doors were open and the prisoners were still inside. And so he called for torches, searched the jail, found everyone was there. He had heard a portion of our message previously. But when he found us still there, he wanted to know exactly what we had been saying. And so we told him the story of Christ and how there was freedom in Christ no matter what man did to us. And he became a believer that very night. He fed us. He washed our wounds from the beating. Looking back, I think, at the same time the blood was being washed from our backs, the blood of Christ was washing him clean. And he and his whole family came to Christ went back to jail that night. And the next morning, the magistrates sent word that we should be released. I think they were hoping that we would slip out of the city. I don't know everything they had in mind. But my fear was that if we left the way they said, later they would be able to proclaim that we were escaped convicts that could grab us again and throw us back in jail. And after all, they had beaten us without an appropriate trial. They had just given in to the mob. But we were Roman citizens. And it was the duty of the magistrate to protect Roman citizens from any common rabble, and they had failed in their duty. So we said to the jailer, you tell those magistrates if they want us to leave jail, they better come themselves and in public set us free so that everyone will know there's no charge against us. The magistrates weren't completely pleased about that, but they did come. And they came back and said, we're sorry, please go. Please keep going out of our city. And we agreed to do that. First, we stopped back at Lydia's house and said farewell to our friends. But then we headed along because we didn't want to cause additional anxiety and grief for the new believers who were in Philippi. About 70 miles east of Philippi, having gone through several towns in the meantime, we arrived at Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a major city. It's the capital and largest city of the province of Macedonia. It's a trading center. It was given some years ago the ability to strike its own coins. And if you looked at those coins, you'd see the image of the emperor. Because Thessalonica, Thessalonica was a seat of the imperial cult. In the city of Thessalonica, the emperor was worshiped as a deity. And the city officials suppressed any rivalry to that because they enjoyed their favored status with Rome. And so any new idea was met with resistance in Thessalonica. We went to the synagogue, as we always did, and we preached the truth of the gospel. We showed from the scripture how it was necessary that the Messiah should suffer and die and that he would be raised again at the last day. Some believed, 
many didn't believe. But enough believed that the Jews took notice again, and they resurrected a mob and began to search for us across the city. They didn't find us, but they found the home of Jason, who was an official who had been converted to the way sometime before, and they dragged him before the magistrates. And the magistrates required of him that he post a bond to say that he would be responsible for keeping the peace. And that really involved our ministry as well. And so we slipped out of the town quietly so that we didn't create problems for Jason. But I'm not certain that slipping out was the best thing to do in hindsight, because that would cause us more problems later. We made our way down to Berea, went to the synagogue there and began to speak as we were invited to. And we found in Berea an unusual group of men in the synagogue who were anxious to study the scripture with us. And so we spent a long period of time talking with them, explaining how it was that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of our scripture, and how it was that he was our Messiah, and, and what the promises of God through the Messiah actually were. And we had a wonderful, fruitful ministry there for many weeks. But the Jews from Thessalonica heard about the progress of the ministry in Berea, and they sent men again, worked up the crowd, and so I left for Athens to escape. But Silas and Timothy were less well-known, and so they were able to stay for a while longer and support the church in Berea while I escaped. Moving south to Athens, I was disturbed as I walked through the city area. Everywhere I went, there were idols, buildings, shrines, so many different gods. And I wondered how, how folks could be so deceived to think that there was any life in an image carved by some artist or sculptor. How, how these idols could, could mean anything to anyone. Walking around the city, I began to preach as I often did. And eventually I came in contact with some men who heard my message and said, you know, this sounds like a new philosophy. Why don't you come and, and tell us all this new philosophy you're espousing? And so I was gathered before the Areop Areopagus Council to present my views, and they listened with interest. This is roughly what I said on that day. I said, men of Athens, I observe that you are a very religious people. Everywhere I go, I see evidence of your devotion to the gods and of your concern to carefully consider items and issues of faith. In fact, I came across one particular shrine that was inscribed to the unknown God. And what was previously unknown to you, I now proclaim to you this day. It's important to understand that God does not live in any image crafted by human hands. He needs nothing from us. In fact, it's just the opposite. In him, we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. And because we are his offspring, we are like him in that we are persons, not idols, not statues. In the past, God overlooked your ignorance but he has now appointed a time 
when all humanity will be judged. And you will be judged by the one that God has validated to be the judge. And the way we know who that one is is because God raised him from the dead and he is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. Well, as soon as I mentioned resurrection, half the crowd just sort of turned away. They didn't want to hear anything about resurrection. But still, there were some who believed. They invited me to come back and speak again. I did so. But it was a difficult city. And eventually, I moved on to Corinth. Corinth is another large trading monopoly of the city. It's a dirty city. It is in many ways a a vile city. And when I arrived, there was was an, an oppression, if you will. Fortunately, soon after I got there, I ran into two who had become close friends. Aquila and Priscilla were a couple that had just moved to Corinth from Italy, and they were both tent makers, so we immediately could talk shop. I moved in with them, and the three of us all made tents together, and in doing so, provided for my ministry activities and fed ourselves and our families uh, during that time. They were rich friends, and before too long, Silas caught up with us there and joined us. And even though Corinth was a hard and difficult place to minister, the Lord gave me a vision. And the Lord told me very specifically to be bold and faithfully proclaim the gospel message in this town. And so I knew that in this town, I would not be fleeing quickly in the face of danger but I had the Lord's specific promise to be bold and to be faithful, and that's exactly what we did. While we were there in Corinth, Timothy finally returned from Thessalonica, and he had amazing news. I I was really afraid that given all the oppression in Thessalonica, given all the persecution, that that church, that small, fledgling church, would collapse under the pressure and and just give up. But the opposite was true. They were thriving. They were growing. They were committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and his news just, I don't know, it awoke such a love and a passion for them in my heart that I quickly just wrote them back. And I sent a letter to them, and, and in part to encourage them. I mean, I was, I wanted them to know that I prayed for them with thanksgiving on every occasion, that I was so pleased to see that they were following the gospel, that they were being bold in their faith, that they were being committed to all that we had talked about. But then there were some things that Timothy told me that I need to address, one of which the fact that there were some miscreants who had showed up in the fellowship and who were saying things against the gospel and against me personally. Part of their charge was that We didn't really love them. Otherwise, we would have hung out with them after the persecution started. But the fact that we slipped away in the night, they were saying, was a symbol that we were just mercenaries trying to profit off the gospel. I told them nothing could be further from the truth. 
I left for their benefit, not for mine. I left because I loved them, that I was completely invested in them. And I reminded them that the whole time I was there, I did not profit from the gospel, but I made my own way and supported myself. So it didn't cost them anything for me to come and bring the news of the gospel. In fact, they were enriched because of my presence there. And then I sent them a few words to correct their thinking. Because one of the things that was concerning to them was the fact that they knew Jesus was coming again, but they didn't know when. And some of the believers had died between the time I had spoken to them and the time I was writing. And they were worried what would happen to believers who didn't manage to stay alive until Jesus returned. Well, I was able to quickly assure them that they didn't have to worry about that at all. Because Jesus has all of us in his hand. And those who die before Jesus returned, well, we're not going to get to heaven ahead of them. But the dead rise first because they are in his hand. And then we join them together with Christ at his return. And so be confident that whether you live or die on earth, your future is secure in Jesus for eternity. And so I was so pleased to be able to share that good news with them so that they wouldn't worry or, or grieve unnaturally. Sure, there's grief when our loved ones die, but, but we have a hope beyond death. We have a hope that transcends death because Jesus is our eternal hope. And they were comforted by those words, I'm sure. The other thing I needed to remind them, though, there were some who were so convinced that Jesus was coming back tomorrow that they just quit working. And you know what happens then? Then I'm eating my neighbor's bread, and, I'm, and it became a problem in the church. I said, listen, that's not how we wait. We don't wait in idleness. We work till Jesus comes. We do the work of the kingdom. We share the good news because we don't want anyone to perish. We don't want anyone to miss out on this glorious hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And it is a rock-solid hope that we work together, that we pursue together, that is the anchor of our confidence. Because Jesus is our rock. I can't tell you how encouraged I was to hear their faith, the compassionate way they take care of one another, the way they obviously love one another. It blessed my soul. And my prayer for them, I guess, is the prayer I have for all of my churches. It's this. May the God of peace sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the one who called you is faithful and he will do it. Amen. Maranatha.